in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to be preaching from verse 16 through 26. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, reading through verse 26. This is the word of God. It has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Give it your reverent attention as I read it to you. And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions. And give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things possible. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we rejoice that we have the words of life in front of us, of eternal life in front of us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word You have had it inscripturated so that we can have it and know your mind and your will for us. Would you please reveal your mind and your will to us afresh through the preaching of the word now, that we might better trust you, that we might better serve you, for you are worthy of this from us. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um, how many of you ever heard somebody say something like this? And you may or may not have heard somebody say something like this, but there's, there's a good possibility you have. And that is something like, I know I'm going to heaven one day because I'm basically a good person. And I've tried to live a good life, and so I'm going to go to heaven, I think. You ever heard anybody say something like that? Maybe you have. If you haven't, sooner or later you will. Because quite a lot of people believe just that, including a lot of little children. Believe that they're going to go to heaven because they're a good person, they think. Perhaps you have even said that to yourself, or to someone, or heard somebody else say it, uh, or you've said it to somebody else. Well, the young man that is um, the center of this, well, actually Jesus is the center of this passage, but the young man who's engaging with Jesus in this passage, children, he um, was just such a person. He was a person who thought that he was good, basically. And he thought that he was going to go to heaven because he was good. Is that the way to go to heaven? The answer is no. The answer is no. This passage is going to teach us a lot about what is and what isn't the way to get to heaven through the young man and through Jesus' interaction with him. So listen to this sermon as I uh, unpack this passage for you. This young man, uh, in this passage, he's often called the rich young ruler because he was rich. He was young, uh, and he was a man clearly of a high standing in the community, uh, the Jewish community, community in which he lived. He was uh, undoubtedly a very religious man, uh, whom, who was well thought of by others, uh, who was deemed to be a man of high moral character by the community, which is why he was, had, a, had a good reputation. Um, and yet this very um, decent human being, We'll call him that. Uh, and this uh, man who was well-respected, something was missing in his life. Something was missing. And that was, he was not certain that he was going to heaven when he parted from this world. He wasn't yet certain of that. And he earnestly desired to know what he had to do to ensure that he would make it to heaven. And so he goes to Jesus for answers to his questions, or his one question, really. And there are two things that the Holy Spirit, speaking through Matthew, provides us with in this passage. Two major points. First, we're going to see in this passage the description of the self-righteous person. And secondly, we're going to see in this passage the prescription for the self-righteous person. First, the description of him, and then the prescription for him. First, we're going to look at the description of the self-righteous man. This man is that man, as you've undoubtedly figured out already. This man assumes, uh, as you can hear from his very question, what good things shall I do to obtain uh, eternal life? 
that I may attain eternal life. He assumes that he is capable of earning by his own behavior or his own actions God's favor. He believes that he possesses within himself, in other words, the innate ability to merit God's approval or God's acceptance of him, and as a result of earning that approval from God, earning eternal life, life in heaven forevermore. Verse 16, again, his question makes that quite clear, that that is what he believes, that he can do whatever is needed to obtain uh, heaven or to, to uh, merit heaven. And this belief on this young man's part betrays a tremendous self-righteousness and arrogance, really, uh, in his heart. This is the quintessential self-righteous person in many ways. He believed that, apparently believed, that he was approaching the level of moral excellence that God required of him to let him into heaven. Verse 20, we'll get uh, say more about it in a minute, but notice in verse 20, uh, he says to Jesus, after Jesus has listed off these uh, commandments that he was going to have to keep in order to get into heaven, um, he says, all these things I have kept. And in Mark and Luke's version of uh, this account, he says, from my youth up. I've kept all these commandments, Jesus, from my youth up. He really believes he's kept all the commandments. There are many people that believe, like him, that they can do, through their own efforts, what is necessary to appease God and please God, so that he will say, come on in, when they leave this world into heaven. The truth is, folks, no one, absolutely no one, on this earth is capable of earning his way into heaven. No one is capable of that. Why is that the case? Many of you know the answer. And the answer is because our very moral constitution as sinners is offensive to God. Our heart, in other words, before we do a single action or think a single thought that's improper or say something that is improper, the very heart that we have, the very uh, core of our being is sinful. And sin offends God. You say, where is that found in the Bible that my heart is full of sin um, and might not be acceptable to God? Many places, but I'm going to pick two. Both of them are in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, 10 through 12, and then Romans 3, 23. We read here, and Paul is quoting here uh, from uh, the Psalms, or Isaiah, I believe it is, or the Psalms, one of the two. Psalms, sorry. Here's what he says, starting in verse 10. He's quoting from Psalm 14 and, verse, uh, and Psalm 53. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Notice that. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then he says over in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A familiar verse to many of us. 
Because none of us does good. None of us is seen by God as doing good because of our sinful nature and all that proceeds from it. No one is capable of pleasing God enough by our own actions, by our own efforts, by our own goodness. The rich young ruler didn't understand this. In fact, he didn't have a clue about the depth of his own depravity and the depth of God's hatred of that depravity. And this is the reason why he thought he could perhaps do what needed to be done to earn God's favor and get into heaven thereby. Not a single person, not a single human being this side of the fall is capable of saving himself. No one. And verse 26, by the way, of the passage we're looking at, Jesus makes that point. With men, this is impossible, being saved, because that's what was the context there. Then who can be saved? And he says, it's impossible with men. Nobody can save himself. Makes that very point in our passage. So, the self-righteous person, first, he assumes that he's capable of earning God's favor by his own efforts. And secondly, the self-righteous man or woman or child displays a profound ignorance of the criterion that God uses to determine where a sinner will spend eternity. The rich young ruler apparently believed that God demanded something less than perfect and perpetual obedience from him. He apparently believed that mere outward conformity to the Ten Commandments and their numerous corollaries found throughout the scriptures, that mere outward conformity to those commandments, those laws, was sufficient to please God and earn him or anyone uh, a place with God in the afterlife. He couldn't have been further from the truth. Nor are you if you believe that. The very nature of God rules out his toleration of anything less than absolute moral perfection perpetually in the person's life. And if you have ever committed a single sin Actually, you don't even have to commit a single sin. By your very nature, and my very nature as human beings uh, uh, represented by Adam in the garden in the fall, we are, as I said earlier, our moral constitution is sinful from the get-go, before we think or do or say a single thing. And God demands absolute moral perfection. He cannot see sin when he looks at you or me, or he will drive us out of his presence forevermore, which is what happens to the damned. God is utterly and blindingly holy. And because he is this way, morally speaking, he detests anything other than absolute moral purity, and perfection. But secondly, not only is God blindingly holy and uh, detests uh, imperfection, moral imperfection, but he's also perfectly righteous and just. He is the righteous judge, Scripture says. 
And because he is the righteous judge, he is he absolutely cannot ju- uh, excuse me, declare somebody who is guilty of violating his holy will, his laws, his commandments, and that's all of us. He cannot declare us to be innocent in his sight and not let alone righteous in his sight. Because we aren't. And because we aren't, if he were to declare us to be righteous by just looking at us and seeing our sin but saying, oh, I'm just going to close my eyes and say he's righteous or she's righteous, he would be the personification of injustice. That would be, to to make such a proclamation from the bench, shall we say, would be uh, a miscarriage of justice for the ages. Thankfully, God has no injustice. He's incapable of injustice. And so it's impossible for this infinitely righteous judge of the universe to act that way. He can't deny himself. And you need to be thankful that that's the case. Let me ask you, how do you think God views your sinful heart and views your sinful actions. Do you, like most Americans, believe that God will overlook your innumerable violations of his holy will, his laws, and judge you to be a basically good person because he does this and he sees a little more good than he does bad in you? You're fatally mistaken if you believe that. If, when you appear before him, he sees anything less than moral perfection in you and me, if you think he, uh, if when we do that, when we appear before him, he sees anything less than moral perfection, you will be, I will be, among those whom he says, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what he will say if he sees anything less than perfection in you when you appear before him, when you leave this world. For you see, the standard, and getting back to the criterion that I mentioned earlier that the self-righteous man didn't grasp, no self-righteous person does, the standard by which you and I will be judged in the day of judgment is the absolute, moral, infinite, moral purity of God himself. It's his perfection, his moral goodness, uh, his moral purity that will be the standard. He won't look at your neighbor and go, oh, you're a better person than he is. I'll pick you and not him. He's not going to do that. He's not going to compare you to your neighbor. He's not going to compare me. To my neighbor. He's going to compare us to him. And if he sees anything less than perfection, we're done for. All of us. So, that's scary, right? Because all of us who are honest with ourselves know we're wretched sinners. Thankfully, the passage goes on and speaks of other matters. Specifically, 
It gives not only a description of the self-righteous person, but it's implied in large part, but it also the prescription for the self-righteous person. The first uh, thing that the self-righteous person needs to do in order to not go to hell for being unrighteous rather than righteous as he deems himself to be is he needs to comprehend the magnitude of God's infinite holiness and justice. That's the first thing the self-righteous person needs to grasp. And Jesus was trying to help the rich young ruler grasp this in verse 17. So the rich young ruler asked his question, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? And then he says this, there is no one who is good. Excuse me, excuse me, he says, uh, there is only one, rather, who is good. And his obvious point is, that would be God. His point is, you, my friend, who are speaking to me right now, are not a good person. In spite of what you think about yourself. And he would probably think, well, I am a good person. Everybody thinks I'm quite highly of me in my, in my community. The issue here is you are not, and I are, we are not good, nor was this man, certainly, good in God's sight. Remember, God's standard is perfection, moral perfection. And when it comes to God's understanding of who we are and who this man was, Jesus is saying, you're not good. You have no idea. How sinful you are is what he's saying. We all uh, have a natural tendency, human beings do because we're, we're just tend to be kind of this way. We have a, a tendency to assume that God's goodness, when we talk about the goodness of God, his goodness is just a better version of our own. Goodness. As if somehow the difference between the goodnesses, if we can put it that way, is merely one of degree. God's more good than I am. But I'm good. He's just more good. Couldn't be further from the truth. We commonly, in our modern day and age, and for uh, ages past, uh, commonly use the word good uh, to refer to a person's actions or his character. Say, he's he's a good person. She's 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 a good woman. And we're... We, we're fairly liberal in the use of that term. Uh, we're uh, generous in the use of that term. But here's the thing. When we say that, we're, that goodness is only from a human perspective. A decent human being, a decent, you know, we have, we, many of us have neighbors who are nice folks, who aren't Christians, don't ever go to church, don't believe in Jesus, but they're good folks. Good folks. In a manner of speaking, they are. When, when compared... With others around uh, the community, perhaps they are. But that's only from a human perspective. The truth is, unless you are a Christian covered in the blood of Christ, your supposed good deeds that you and your neighbor perhaps think are good are vile in God's sight. 
They're disgusting. They are um, filthy rags in God's sight. Repugnant to him. Why? Because your heart, you see, my heart, if I'm not a Christian, our hearts are vile and our hearts pollute any outwardly good behavior that we might engage in. And God sees that pollution of the heart when he looks at the deed. And he finds it abominable. Because it is polluted by the heart from which it comes. You see, God's goodness is not quantitatively different from our own. It is qualitatively different from our own. From the way mankind describes goodness and uses the term. God is, again, absolutely, utterly good without even the slightest hint of evil. And that goodness, that holiness, that purity is the standard by which he judges in the day of judgment, you and me. Only when a person begins to fathom this infinite moral purity of God and God's consequent hatred of impurity, which is sin, and of my sin and of your sin, only when we begin to grasp that purity of God and what it produces in terms of hatred of sin, will a person understand his desperate need of God's forgiveness and be motivated to find the source of that forgiveness. A self-righteous person is going to hell as long as they remain self-righteous, as long as they don't understand how righteous God is. And secondly, how vile we are in the sight of God. And that's the second prescription for the self-righteous man. He has to understand not only how good God is, and that God alone is good, but he has to understand how sinful and hell-deserving he is, or she is. The rich young ruler believed that he was a pretty godly individual. Quite evident by his words. Uh, Very evident, actually, down there in verse uh, 22. All these things I've kept from my youth up. Very fond of himself. He grossly underestimated the extent of his sinfulness in God's sight. So Jesus sets about to uh, prove to this foolish man how wrong he is about himself his view of himself and how wrong that is. He points out that a person may hypothetically try to earn eternal life, that is, life with God in heaven, for himself. He may try to do that hypothetically by perfectly obeying God's commandments, which is why Jesus says what he says in verse 17. Remember, so, so what, do I, what must I do? What shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And then he says this, but if you wish, 
to enter into life, keep the commandments. He's saying there, if you want to get into heaven by obedience, go ahead. Go ahead. Try that one. See how that works out for you. Salvation or eternal life by obedience to God's commandments. That was the term of the first covenant that God entered into with humanity in the garden before the fall. This is what we Reformed Christians have historically referred to as the covenant of life. Notice life, or the covenant of works. The covenant of life gives life to those who fulfill it. And God made a covenant of life with Adam in the garden. He offered eternal life to Adam and all of his posterity, all of his descendants, if Adam, as the representative of humanity, would perfectly trust God by perfectly obeying God's command. It was one command representative of obedience to all the others, and that command was, do not eat of this one tree. Had Adam obeyed that command during that probationary period, that testing period, he and all of his descendants would have been confirmed in their righteousness and their blessed life for all eternity. They would have had eternal life had they obeyed, had Adam obeyed. And that, and we know what happened, of course, he didn't, but that offer in the first covenant, that offer um, of eternal life in exchange for perfect obedience is still technically on the table. You hear it periodically throughout the Old Testament, and you hear it here in the New Testament, right in this passage, and one or two other places. It keeps coming up. It keeps being mentioned, just periodically. And that offer is still technically on the table. Obey perfectly and perpetually, and you'll obtain eternal life. That's why Jesus says that to this man. But though hypothetically on the table, eternal life for obedience, it is utterly impossible to obtain, for any of us to obtain eternal life by this covenant, this first covenant's terms. Why? Because, as the Shorter Catechism, question 82 puts it, no mere man, Jesus was not a mere man, by the way, he was the God-man, but the confession says, uh, Catechism 82, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Notice daily, by the way. And they got that spot on. It's biblical truth. Nobody, every day we sin, Every one of us sins. And we're conceived in sin, with Adam's sin imputed to us. There's absolutely no hope in the first covenant. None. And so to convince the rich young ruler of his inability to save himself through law-keeping 
What Jesus does in verses 18 and 19 is he provides him with a representative sampling of the many commands that he would have to keep in order to earn his way into heaven by his own obedience. He says there in verse 18, uh, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love the Lord, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And shockingly, rather than acknowledging to Jesus his failure to perfectly and perpetually obey the commands that Jesus lists as well as the many others that he was implying needed to be obeyed, this fool, this fool, the spiritually blinded young fool, actually claims that he has kept them all from his youth And you know what? Left to our own devices, we would all think that. And don't think that you wouldn't. You're lying to yourself if you don't think that, apart from God's grace, you wouldn't believe that. Because every other religion in the world teaches just that truth. Not, that, that, not truth, but that, that uh, belief. If I work hard enough, God will be pleased with me and let me in. Damned which is us if God hadn't been gracious. This man probably had kept the commands that Jesus mentioned in a superficial way. Outwardly. in In a way so that other people didn't see the imperfections in it. He probably did that by and large. But you see, he utterly, utterly failed to understand that Jesus, when he mentioned those commandments and listed those commandments, Jesus was not thinking about the need for external conformity, merely external conformity to those commands, those laws of God, but he was thinking of heart conformity, perfect, perpetual Purity, morally speaking. That's what he was, Jesus was saying. He was saying, first covenant, you want to try? Go ahead and try. And heart obedience, heart purity, heart love for God, heart um, Righteousness is something that this man didn't even come remotely close to. Neither does anyone in this world. You and I have not. He'd had not. He was still clueless by the end of the story, by the end of the account. But the fact that none of us measure up, the fact that none of us come even close to being even even slightly holy in a way that is acceptable or pleasing to God 
because of the impurity of our own hearts and the blinding uh, purity and magnitude of God's holiness. This is why, folks, we need, we all need a substitute who can purchase our right standing in God's sight, in the judges, the righteous judges' sight, so that who can whom God the Father can look upon and say, righteous. That's why we need Jesus. Well, when the rich young ruler fails to grasp his utter failure to measure up to God's requirements, even after Jesus has listed off a bunch of them, Jesus goes for the jugular. Because he knows, because he's God, Jesus knows full well what this man lives for. And it's not Yahweh. It's not God. So in order to show him the true condition of his heart, his own heart, that he loves his possessions and not God, Jesus informs him in verse 21, if you wish to, if you, and he's speaking directly at this guy, saying, if you wish to, To be complete, meaning go to heaven, have eternal life, go. Sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the man went away horribly sad because he knew he couldn't give up his possessions. They were his God. And Jesus knew that, and now he knew that. And he was sad because he wanted eternal life, but he didn't want to give up his God. So in order for us to grasp our need for Jesus and his righteousness and his uh, what he did through his atoning work on the cross on behalf of sinners who would trust in him, in order for us to see our need for him, we have to first grasp the extent of our own wretchedness, our own guilt, the magnitude of that guilt in God's sight, so that we might understand our desperate need for Jesus, so that we might be properly humbled, and so that we might abandon any hope of looking to ourselves for something um, for something in ourselves with which to commend ourselves to God. You see, unless a person is brought to that place, there is no hope for him or her. None. Because they won't go to Jesus. They won't see their need of Jesus. And his righteousness and his sacrifice to, uh, to, um, uh, to appease God's wrath directed toward our sin. Nobody will see their need of Jesus until they get to that point. They're properly humbled and abandon all hope from within themselves. Well, thirdly, in addition to understanding uh, the magnitude of God's holiness and justice and understanding the extent of one's own sinfulness, a self-righteous man or woman or child must cling to Jesus as his greatest treasure. The rich young ruler thought he was willing to do what was necessary to obtain eternal life, but Jesus knew better. As 
I said, the love of his life uh, and uh, was his possessions. That was the love of his life. Uh, They were his God, what he lived for, what he worshipped, in effect. And this is evidenced, again, by his uh, grieved uh, state after Jesus said, you need to give it all up. He was going to have to walk away if he was going to go to heaven and have eternal life, he was going to have to walk away from this idol in his life, his possessions, in order to become a follower of Jesus and be get into heaven. See, Jesus demands that sinners come to him on his terms, not theirs, not ours. And a person, when he comes to Jesus for eternal life, like this man did, he or she must trust Jesus, the God-man, the only hope of sinners. He must trust him as both his Savior from God's judicial wrath in hell, which is God is in hell, Satan is not. But if he's going to trust Jesus in a way that Saves, he has to trust him as the Savior of God from God's judicial wrath, his righteous wrath. And he has to trust Jesus as the Lord and Master of his life. Jesus is Savior and Lord, or as we Reformed folks put it, he is prophet, priest, and king of his people. And that is the way you accept him. You trust him for who he is, or you don't trust him at all. And he is king. He demands to be lord and king and master of the life of his those for whom he died. And when one trusts him, and it's only by faith that we are united to Jesus, but we are united to a Jesus who is Savior and Lord. And it's only that Jesus that saves So to trust in Jesus savingly is to want him and love him for who he is, Savior and Lord, and to do so from the heart. Not perfectly. None of us do that or can this side of heaven. But truly, we want Jesus and him alone. And we flee to him in faith and love. And we abandon the other gods that we were serving. You see, this man was not saved, would not have been saved by by selling all his possessions as a condition of God's granting him eternal life. He would not have been saved by that. But he had to do that as the as a condition of being saved, you see. Trey has talked about this in Sunday school in times past. Uh, There's antecedent conditions and there are consequent conditions of salvation. 
This man's putting off, throwing off his possessions would not have been an antecedent condition where God says, if you do this, then I will give you, I will forgive you. It is, I will forgive you and then you will do this. If you're truly forgiven, you'll show by your, that you're forgiven by selling your possessions and giving to the poor in the case of this man. So, in conclusion, if you were to die tonight, think about that for a moment. If you were to die tonight, as you're getting ready for bed, or in your bed, would you be ready to face the judicial scrutiny of your blindingly holy and righteous God? Would you be ready to face the righteous judge? Your answer to that question, whether or not you're ready, depends on your answer to these two questions. Have you grasped the depth and heinousness of your own sin in God's sight and abandoned any hope of obtaining his forgiveness in your, through your own efforts? And secondly, are you trusting in the Jesus of the Bible alone? To cover your sins from God's sight, and more than just cover your sins, but to apply to you his righteousness, so that God can look at you and see righteousness in the day of judgment. Jesus, who is the God-man, Jesus' divine righteousness, his perfect righteousness, when he looks at you in that day. And that you're trusting, and that you have Jesus uh, having paid the debt for your sins, which is uh, God's wrath for eternity, which he absorbed on behalf of all those who would trust in him. You have to have that Jesus. Are you trusting in that Jesus to save you and nothing else? If your answer to those last two questions is yes and yes, then you're ready to go. You're ready to go onto eternity. But if you're not, if you have not said yes to those questions, do so now. You have no guarantee of five minutes from now. Do so now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you how it... um, dispels us of any notion uh, that we might somehow be good enough for you and our own supposed goodness. Thank you also that it points us to our need to abandon all, uh, all our idols and turn to you, the living God, through your Son, who is also God, as our only hope. Thank you, Jesus, again so much that you paid the debt that we owed in full and that you accomplished perfect righteousness, perfect obedience that has now been credited to all those of us who are looking to you alone to save us. And Lord, if there is anyone out there um, or here in this room 
who has not grasped this yet, who has been kidding, lying to himself or herself about their acceptability in your sight apart from Jesus alone, please open such a person's eyes and cause him to flee to the Savior. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.